Have you ever had someone that you really looked up to in faith that let you down? Someone that you thought, man, if this was the, if, if there was Jesus on earth, it would be this person and they let you down? Maybe, maybe it was the first time you found out that uh, your, your parent didn't always tell the truth. Maybe it was that Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was that pastor that you thought was always kind and thoughtful and you got in the inner circle and now you heard some judgmentalism and you're like, oh, that's weird. Maybe it was me. Today we're going to look at this story and I'm going to try to offer up some insight from the scripture on what kind of perspective followers of Christ should have if they find themselves in the same situation we're going to be looking at today. And what is that situation? It's part two, really, of a topic we started last week. It's this idea of conflict in the church. In the church, first. Now, I will say this. What we talk about can actually help you, and there are ties to conflict in general. Conflict in your marriage, conflict in your family, conflict. But you need to first understand that we are being very specific, and we are, we are actually admitting that this passage is primarily about how to deal with conflict in the church. Now, I know there's never been any conflict in this church, but if there was today, we get to take a look at how much grace we could afford not only ourselves but one another when we find or see that the church is in conflict. So let's take a look at this passage and dive right in. Verse 36, it says this, after some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, or some people made fun of me because I said Barnabas, that's actually how you say it, but anyways, Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord, <laughs> and see how they're doing. So, real quick, stop. I won't do this after every verse. But right here is the beginning of what biblical scholars refer to as Paul's second missionary journey. We have first missionary journey, second missionary journey, or as I like to call it, because it was what it was, it was his second church planting journey. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but I just to just say this because I think sometimes we forget about this, but one of the hearts of our church was to not only start a church, but be a church that, has, that is involved with starting other churches. One of the things that we'll talk about this Wednesday is my heart for us to plant a church in the next, hopefully, couple years here. We need to find a planter, but whether you know this or not, we have the money. We, as a church, have been faithfully setting aside money each year. We actually have over what we need to actually be part of planting a church. That's good news. We need a planter now. And so we want to be part. Paul and Barnabas knew that the gospel spreading would mean the planting of new churches. And I hope we don't forget that we not only were about us, Clarity Church, starting a new church called Clarity, but we were about starting other churches. And so, we'll talk more about that later. Verse 37. Here's where it gets good. You ready? Barnabas 
wanted to take along John Mark. John, Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was also called Mark. Now, just in case you didn't know or you forgot, when we first hear John Mark's name in, uh, in the book of Acts, it's in Acts chapter 12. Peter just got out of prison, right? He was in prison, and he got let out of prison. And the first place he went after he got let out of prison was the house, was the, was the house of, a, of, of the mother of a guy by the name of, guess who? John Mark. John Mark. And so John Mark, his family, was, they were pretty big in the beginnings of the church. Like, his mom was hosting this prayer gathering. And then again, at the end of Acts chapter 12, we see that Paul and Barnabas took John Mark along with them back to Jerusalem. They were coming on the tail end of the first missionary journey. And so they said, hey, this guy, he's got potential. Let's bring him along. Eventually, he became part of this first missionary journey of this dynamic duo of apostles we refer to as Paul and Barnabas, or to be fair, in the context you'll see, it's very clear. In the first mission journey, they don't call him Paul and Barnabas. They call it what? They call this duo what? No, no, no. Barnabas. Order is important. Barnabas and Saul. Okay? Later we hear Paul. There's a little subtle shift. So then again, in uh, in chapter 13, we also hear this very short verse, which says this. Chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it says this. It says, Paul and his companions set sail for for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. John left them and he went back to Jerusalem. So it's like not even two chapters and John was with them and then John left them. Now, no reason was given for why John left. No reaction from Paul or Barnabas was recorded at this moment. It didn't say, and John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. And they were royally ticketed off. Or, you know, or he, they, he left them and, and Paul and Barnabas blessed him. Or, and they understood. Or, there was nothing. It just said, he left. Went back to Jerusalem. You would think that if John Mark's departure back to Jerusalem was a problem, it would have been recorded at this moment, right? I mean, come on. Mr. Luke, the doctor, recording everything, every detail, taking all the eyewitness. You would think that if there was an issue, this verse 13 would have read, but John was weak and not really committed and left them. Or John was, you know, John's mom was really hurt and he had to go back. And help, right? If it was like something serious, don't you think it would have been recorded? Well, technically, it is recorded that there was a problem. <laughs> if you look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 15, it reads that, uh, actually verse 38 of chapter 15, it, it reads this, it says this. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them. It's very strong language deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. And then watch this. They, Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp 
disagreement. This is Bible speak for there were some words <laughs> exchanged. There was some probably snapping of fingers and moving of heads if that was what they would do in that culture, okay? They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You ever been in such an argument with someone and someone was like, you know what, I just got to go. You ever been in that argument? Have you ever seen that argument? I tell you what, when you're in that argument or if you see that argument, are things pretty bad at that point? Yeah. No one's like, hey, um, you left the toothpaste. You squeezed it from the middle. You know what? I'm leaving the house. That doesn't, okay, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen, right? You know, I told you to pick up those socks. This is the hundredth time I'm leaving the house. Now, some of you might do that, but that's, you know, that's, that's another sermon. And I charge hourly for um, that kind of services for counseling. So you can come see me later. This wasn't that situation. This is something very serious. And they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Sicilia, strengthened, strengthening the churches, strengthening the churches. Okay, so crazy, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. I don't know if you realize this, if you've ever read this part of the scriptures and you read this and just went like, what in the world was happening here? Like, what's going on? On a side note, if you are being charged with part of creating a religion and being charged with the responsibility of writing part of the scripture by which people would be convinced or persuaded that Jesus was real and the gospel is truth, would you write about the start of this movement in this way? The answer is no. The writer of Acts wasn't trying to record the history of the early church in an effort to persuade people to become followers of Jesus. The writer of Acts was documenting the history of the church in an effort to show how great God was despite the realities of the early church. That's something very important to realize. Because I think sometimes when people read the Bible, they're like, Man, these Christians don't look very Christian-like. And Well, I guess the Bible says we should disagree with people. And you grab a person, I grab... If you just do the Bible says, you can find yourself in a very, very, very uh, tenuous situation that you don't want to be in. One Bible scholar wrote in his commentary of this passage this. I just think it's helpful. He says this. The story of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas does not make pleasant reading. No, duh. But Luke's realism in recording it helps us to remember that the two men, as they themselves said to the people of Lystra, were human beings with feelings like any other. These guys were like you. These guys were like me. Okay, so the question remains, what do we do when we have conflict, or when we see conflict, what do we do? 
What do we do especially when we see conflict between people who are already followers of Christ? What do we do if and when the person sitting next to you becomes your source of conflict? Well, I have a couple things that I think are helpful to understand. And so I go from exposition to hermeneutics now and just offer some things that I think might be helpful from a scriptural perspective. The first thing, when we find ourselves in conflict or witnessing conflict among other Christians, whether it's in your literal church or as I often see right now online, I see people who call themselves Christians spitting verses and ideologies at each other. I don't know if you see it. I see it. It makes me sick to my stomach. It's one thing to be iron sharpening iron. It's another to have this sense of pride and better than and everyone's stupid and I know what's right. When we're in this situation of conflict, when we see it around us, when we see it in our everyday realities, I think it's helpful to do this. First, recognize that our relationships live in the middle of a world that does not function as God intended. Like your relationships, my relationships, all relationships live, function, operate in the middle of a world that does not function as God intended it to. There probably isn't really a better picture of the reality of what we face in the everyday rhythms of our lives than something a guy named Peter, a guy named Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, you know, the walk on water Peter. He wrote in a letter that we now call 1 Peter. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7. Be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though, listen, even though you must endure many trials, you must endure many trials for a little while, for a little while, for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through your faith, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Until we go to heaven... Or until Jesus comes back, every day as a follower of Jesus Christ is a day of testing. Just in case you didn't know that. I want to let you know, every day is a day of testing. And when you have this perspective, it allows you to accept, one, the trials and the conflicts of life. It at least helps you go, you know, I knew this was coming. I knew this was promised. I knew that this was to come. Especially the conflicts in relationship with people you're supposed to get along with. Other Christians. 
And as much as I want to remind us over and over that God calls the church to unity, it's also helpful to remind you that the scripture is very, very clear that those passages exist because disunity is inevitable. And so disunity or the signs of conflict in the church to me isn't the reality that God is not real or that God doesn't care or that no one is really loving God. But it's the fact that we are conducting relationships in a world that doesn't function as it should. Recognizing that our relationships live in the middle of a world that does not function as God intended also allows us to practice grace. We don't know why John Mark went back to Jerusalem. Obviously, Paul makes it seem like it was a petty reason. Oh, he left us and he didn't continue on in the work. But that's Paul's opinion. Barnabas, if you remember, in the beginning of Acts, he was, he was called son of what? Encouragement. In fact, he was the picture, the model of what the New Testament church, he was the first one to go, I'll sell everything, I'll sell everything, and I'll give it to the church so that people could in need, I'm, I'll be the example. He was the example in the beginning of Acts of what a true Christian should look like. Barnabas, Barnabas, The one who was actually charged, by the way, in the beginning of these missionary journeys by the early church leaders to take Paul under his wing. We celebrate Paul now, but there's a time where it was Barnabas with that budding apostle, Paul. Barnabas evidently thought that John Mark's reason for leaving wasn't disqualifying. Okay? You got two scenarios here. In fact, John, Mark, and Barnabas continued later in their own missionary work, as the scripture tells us. And John, Mark would eventually be someone that the apostle Peter himself would take under his wing. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars think that the book of Mark is actually Mark writing down Peter's account of the gospel. Okay. Now, we don't know all the reasons why people act in the way that find us in conflict with them, right? That's the point. You may think you're in conflict about the science of mass when you're really arguing with someone who's grieving the loss of someone they love because of COVID. Or maybe someone who's battling depression because of isolation. Like You don't know. You think you're arguing because of science. You may think you're in conflict with the theological implications of predestination or free will when really... Maybe what it is is you're in conflict with someone who is prayerfully hoping that a lost son will return home. Or someone that is actually battling with the insecurity that God could never really love them. You may think you're in conflict with someone over a lack of social or emotional awareness when in reality... Maybe you're actually in conflict with the person who desperately wants to just be accepted as they are and to know that they bring value to a relationship. Like, we don't know all the reasons why some people we meet were just like, oh, well, that was kind of rude. That's just weird. But if we understand we are conducting our relationships in a world where nothing goes according to how God desires it to be, we can have the opportunity to have grace. 
we find that we're in conflict with others, especially those who are followers of Christ and should know better, remember that our relationships live in the middle of a world that does not function as God intended. The second thing I think is helpful to remember when you find yourself or see others in conflict is something that James, the guy we talked about earlier in chapter 15, and the brother of Jesus, something that he said in his own letter, James 4, 1 through 3, says this, what is causing the quarrels, 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 what is, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within other people? No, 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 what? Don't they come from the evil desires at war from everybody else? No, he says, within you. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. (laughs) You only want what gives you pleasure. What is James describing? He gives us, I think, the second principle that I think is helpful to understand when we are facing conflict, which is this. You, me, all of us, are sinful people attempting to pursue Christ-likeness with, guess what? Other, wait for it, sinful people. Like, I'm, I'm a sinner. I don't know if you knew that. And guess, and guess what? I, I want to be in relationship with you. And, and you're awesome. But sometimes I could forget that you are like me, a sinful person. There's a war within each of us that causes us to face the challenge of conflict with others. We think that conflict is often an intentional or personal attack. When we get in conflict with others, we're like, they meant it. That was personal. When often what we are dealing with is a person whose life is being affected by sin. And their weaknesses, our life is being affected by their weaknesses, their inability to to live according to God's standards, their failures, our life is being affected. The conflict we face is not because of intentionality or, or, or a personal vendetta against us. Their failures to live up to God's standards, this actually is what hurting us and causing conflict. It's their inability to live a life congruent with God's standards. You think that the person you're in conflict with is intentionally trying to hurt you by being selfish? That person, they're so selfish. I can't believe them. But what is really happening is that you are offended by a person who is ignorantly or sometimes unwillingly, unwillingly struggling with pride or insecurity. Let me just be honest with you. Sometimes I make my wife mad. Just sometimes. And when I do, you know what gets in the way of me fixing it often? Is me going, my bad. I was wrong. Now, I don't struggle 
to not feel guilty. You know what I struggle with? I struggle with the uncomfortability of admitting of what I really know. Admitting of what I know I need to do. And so sometimes you're in conflict with people not because they're intentionally selfish, but many times they're either ignorantly or unwillingly struggling with pride or insecurity. They are sinful people trying to have a relationship with you who is, by the way, a sinful person. Back to what James says. There may be many kinds of conflict, but ultimately there is one source of conflict. The source of conflict is what? You. It's me. Now, if you haven't noticed, this is probably the worst TED talk on how to handle conflict with others. I've given you literally no advice on how to handle a conflict. I've, never, I've not talked about uh, guidelines and, and, and boundaries and what, you know, uh, how much, and I haven't talked about any of that kind of stuff. Like, just, just so you know, I want to admit what you're probably already thinking. Like, this is, uh, principles are, are great, and you haven't said anything I don't disagree with, but like, when are you going to get practical? And this is on purpose because the scripture ultimately tells us, look, listen, you, I could give you some great advice and you can walk away and be like, oh, thanks, Phil, that was really helpful. You know, I've been going through this thing this week and you know, what you said is really, really helpful and you're really, really helpful. And what you said is really, really helpful. But listen, at the end of the day, as we walk through the scripture, I, the desire isn't that I would be really, really helpful. The desire is that you would get a sense of how the gospel informs our everyday lives. And the scripture ultimately tells us that the solution to our conflicts is not a greater dependence on our ability, but a greater submission to God's sovereignty. It's not on our ability, but God's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? When I speak of God's sovereignty, I'm talking about God's willingness and his faithfulness to transform our lives. I'm talking about God's willingness and faithfulness. In the middle of conflict, we forget that God is willing And he is faithful to transform a situation, to be in the middle of that and to change it. We forget that God is willing. We forget that the cross and the empty tomb points us to ask these questions. Why would God go through all of that to save us? Why would God care to notice us, let alone rescue us? Why would God sacrifice his own son? Because God, God is willing I love how one pastor and theologian answered this question when he wrote, you and I need to recognize that God's willingness was motivated not by what he saw in us, but by what is inside of him. He is willing because he is the definition of mercy. He is willing because he is the source of love. He is willing because he is full of amazing grace. He is willing because he is good. He is gentle. He is patient. He is kind. Even when we are unwilling, full of ourselves and wanting our own way, he is, God is willing. He delights in transforming us by his grace. He delights in rescuing us by his powerful love. Or if you want a Bible verse, Romans 5.8 says it simply. But God proves his own love for us. 
in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God is willing. In the middle of your conflict, remember, God is willing to transform. God is willing to teach you to have grace. God is willing. He's not far. In fact, in the middle of the conflict where you feel like God's not even existent, He is there. Would you recognize? Would you lean on Him? Would you ask on Him to teach you ultimately what it means to be like His Son in the middle of your conflict? I think it would look a lot different than the 10 steps for reducing conflict in your life. God's willing. But most importantly, God is faithful. Years before Jesus showed up in a manger, (laughs) God made a promise to a couple by the name of Adam and Eve. They had just disobeyed God. They were caught naked. Not that that was anything shameful, but it was shameful that they kind of actually realized it. And God was like, "Mm, who told you that you were naked? And God knew something was afoot. They had disobeyed him. They had decided to take it upon themselves to become like God. They fell to the temptation that God was not completely honest, that he was holding back something from them. And in order for them to become everything that their heart wanted to be, they needed to take life by the reins and they needed to do what they thought was best for themselves and maybe ask for forgiveness instead of permission. And they ultimately welcomed death and sin into the lives of everyone who would now live on this earth. And so what did God say in the middle of that? I can't believe you! How dare you! I've told you so many times. Did God look like me when I'm mad at my kids? No. He told them that there was a consequence. They'd have to leave the garden. They would suffer. But he would make it clear it's because of what they did, not because of what he wants. But then God made a promise, didn't he? He promised that one day sin and death would be defeated. And guess what? God was faithful. He was so faithful. God sent his son Jesus to defeat sin and death and make a way possible for all people, for me, for you, to be reconciled into a right relationship with himself. Like, Jesus made it possible for the greatest conflict in the world to be resolved. And through the death, through the crucifixion, through the resurrection of his son, God was faithful. It was in the middle of what could be described as the ultimate display of chaos, in the middle of the ultimate display of what looked like things getting out of control, God's one and only son being spat on, innocently tortured and killed, that God demonstrated that he was in fact in control. 
and he was sovereign. That in fact, he was and is and will forever be faithful. So in the middle of the chaos, when it seems like God is is powerless to do anything, (laughs) whether it's in your own personal conflict or I'm just telling, this is a message that's ministering to my heart because like, I'm on social media too, okay? I'm on social, and I watch. I watch. And some of you worry me a little bit because I'm like, I don't know if that's wise. And I'm like, it just seems chaotic right now. When it seems like God is powerless to do anything or like, does he even care what's happening on Instagram? Part of me is like, well, God doesn't care what's happening. What helps me to know is that God has been and still is and will forever be faithful to do what he said he will do. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building, he is creating, he is generating, he is birthing a new nation, a royal priesthood. He is sending ambassadors empowering people through whom which he can literally plead to the world, come back to me. That's encouraging. In light of a world that looks like the church will never be effective again. I said it. I said it. Sometimes I wonder... (laughs) Will the gospel make a difference? Will the church make a difference? And when I get on my little pity party or whatever, I, I'm reminded, and this is, this is the point, the reason why we read through the book of Acts, oh my goodness, it's so much worse than what we have now. Like seriously, just read it. I'm over here going, oh, my mask. And they're like, oh, Gladiators. Okay, right? Just, just so you know. Didn't God do a great thing? Was God willing and was God faithful? Did God transform? Did God eventually, through his gospel, through the display of his love that he asked us to replicate, did he not come into the middle of situations that were happening in churches, either through Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, and didn't the word of God go forward so that what was Chaos and conflict could become peace and there could be unity. Yes, history tells us that. God will do what he said he will do. Or as Philippians 1.6 says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you, within me, I am certain, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns.